0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This show is brought to you by audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. To get a free audio book download of your choice, log on to audiblepodcast.com/sofa today for details. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delights, show number one oh eight. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is. Come on, come on, fine and dandy. Great show today, we have science fiction all the way. Give you a little heads up, what's coming in today's show. We have an editorial by my good self, and actually you could call this an editorial of new titles. But I'll get into that a little bit later. We have poem by Samantha Henderson. We have flash fiction by Gustavo Bondonai. Main fiction tonight comes from Michael Bishop, who had that great story a while back, Vinegar Peace. Another fantastic one by him, and narrated by Mr. Rea Sizemore. Can't get better than that. Then we have the official new titles. Just to round things off, there you go. What a show. So, let's kick off with editorial. And, like I say, editorial this week is a little bit slightly different. In that, you know, normally, 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 it's all about me, 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 me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm not going to do that, no And there's a couple of new books out And I thought, you know, I want to kind of mention them at the front of the show Just because, you know, I feel these are important And there's something special for, you know, the, the, the wider SF community So, first up is a book by our very own Amy H. Sturgis Yes, Amy's got a new book out at the moment it, Well, Amy H. Sturgis and David D. Oberhelman I think that's how, David, I think that's how you pronounce your name From the Mithapurk Press Title is The Intersection of Fantasy and Native America. From H.P. Lovecraft to Leslie Mormon Silkwall. Got a great cover for this book. I, I don't know where Amy's getting this image from or, you know, who's, they've had to, to draw it, but it's, it's stunning to be quite honest. It's like a face surrounded and obscured by, like, autumn leaves. Oh, it's, it's honestly cracking, cracking uh, image that. So I'll give you, I'll give you the blurb on it as well. A number of contemporary Native American authors incorporate elements of fantasy into their fiction, while several non-Native fantasy authors utilise elements of Native America in their storytelling. Nevertheless, few experts on fantasy consider American Indian works and few experts on Native American studies explore the fantastic in literature. Now an international multi-ethnic cross-disciplinary group of scholars investigates the meaningful ways in which fantasy and Native American intersects, examining classics by American Indian authors such as Louise Edrich, Gerald Vizenor. Leslie Mormon Silko and the well-known non-native fantasies such as H.P. Lovecraft, G.R. Tolkien, and J.K. Rowling. Thus, these essayists pioneers new ways of thinking about fantasy texts by native and non-native authors, and challenge other academics, writers, and readers to do the same. There you go. If you're into that kind of thing, please go out and check this. You know, there's some kind of hard work gone into there, and some great essays as well. And I actually, I had a list of the essays there, and... Come to record this. I've only, can only find page two or four that are printed off. So, Amy, sorry about that. Hopefully, I'm going to try and get Amy on sofa notes. And, you know, please, Amy, if you're listening, do a little section on this, you know, for your fact article bit. That would be fantastic. There'll be a link on to that book. If you haven't already heard about it or seen it, please pop over the website and follow the link. Next up is. One more that kind of thing special in science fiction genre and you need to kind of check out. It is A Celebration of World Science Fiction by Lavi Tadar. Full title is The Apex Book of World Science Fiction. It's officially released today and it's an anthology of 15 stories, science fiction, fantasy and horror from around the world. Again, I'll put a link onto that story as well and hopefully i'll try and get a couple of stories from that book and and play them for you as well and next week i've got one of the writers who've got a a story in that magazine who's coming on sofa notes as well so do look out for that so please two books that kind of just need to kind of tickle your horizons and just pique your interest do please have a look at them so i think we'll get on to a little bit of poetry today's poetry comes by samantha henderson and again it is narrated by anne bowman
0: Pope Joan and the Cat by Samantha Henderson This poem first appeared in Raven Electric, 2007. Pope Joan and the Cat I do not like cats. Perhaps that was my ruin, Feline Lucifer in her peak, Taking me down. Raising high the chalice at mass, I saw a slinky brown creature slip Like melted butter Between the feet of the faithful Smile at me, mocking Satan's pet her own self, claiming its unnatural own. If the Pope is a woman, then the devil is a woman, then God is a woman. As below, so above, it cannot stand.
1: The angels turn away, scandalised. I don't like cats. So, since last week, I put out a little shout if anyone wanted, you know, to kind of Get involved in Google Wave and everything like that, you know, please drop us a line. If you want an invite, you know, I mentioned that. Well, I've still got some invites, so please, and don't get us wrong, people have been snatching these up. So I've probably got about 10 left, so I've given about 10 away, I think, if my mind, I think I got 20. So please, if you want a Google invite for Google Wave, do drop us a line. If you've got some ideas about how this can help the community, you know, if you, if you want to kind of help Starship Sova's little community there and just make things, you know, at least tackle this new kind of wave that's coming about, please get in touch. Starshipsova at gmail.com. So moving on to Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction comes from Gustavo Bondonai i got a little bio by Gustavo. Gustavo Bonai is an Argentinian writer with over 40 stories published in five countries, both online and in print, and is the winner of the National Space Society's Return to Luna Contest. He also won the Marooned Award for Flash Fiction in 2008. His genre of fiction has appeared in three Hadley Ryle books, anthologies, Flashing and Swords, the best of everyday fiction, and in other Spanish translations. If you want, you can read his blog over at bondo-ba.livejournal. Don't remember that? I will put a link on it. This Flash Fiction is narrated by Erin Hamilton. Erin has done a few Flash Fiction stories for us in the past. Thank you so much, Erin. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present.
0: Virtuoso by Gustavo Bondoni Everyone on board was well aware of the honour we'd been conceded. Nothing could match the thrill of watching a true artist at work, and no artist in living memory was comparable with Ternesse. i I'd seen holograms of his work, of course. Every museum worth its salt had a wing dedicated to the reproductions of the man's genius. Once, I'd been on the fourth planet of the Rampor system during the Apogee Festival, and they'd had a life-size, real-time projection of his celebrated piece Juna two in orbit around the planet. It had been a breathtaking experience. But to be on the same ship with him, watching as he created his latest masterpiece from inside the bridge, which doubled as his studio, was staggering. Ternisei fiddled with a lever, his anterior tentacle delicately entering infinitesimal corrections as he placed another cube. The location of each cube had been carefully calculated to create the image in the artist's mind. What that image was we wouldn't know until the work was complete of course. The cubes themselves were another source of mystery. They were blocks the size of mountains which were inert enough to be lowered through the atmosphere and not even ignite even when the locals hit them with an unexpected nuclear strike. Yet, they exploded with dazzling color and brightness when the show began. What were they made of? Speculation ran wild in all the best art journals, but the only thing everyone agreed on was that there had to be at least some phosphorus or magnesium in there to create the characteristic brilliant burn. But even this was guesswork, since they were built in deep space by robot workers in a secret location. The block he was lowering, a blue cube, was placed at the mouth of a river. He switched our attention from the monitor that showed the view from orbit to the live feeds from the cameras embedded in the surface of the cube itself. These were showing the descent of the cube onto flat terrain that seemed to be peppered with small rectangular irregularities. On closer inspection, the irregularities resolved themselves into primitive dwellings, small houses suitable for four or five sentients, with some larger edifices sprinkled among them. The buildings were interconnected by a perpendicular grid of roads, packed by some sort of archaic land vehicle, nearly immobile due to the density of the traffic. I wasn't worried by the irregular terrain chosen, Long experience had taught us that the cube was heavy enough to create a flat area beneath it, or at least flat enough that the cube's actuation would not be affected by strange angles. So we were free to rejoice. This would be a singular occasion. Tarnassay himself had often been quoted saying that a plentiful biosphere was one of the main ingredients necessary to create rich color and a slow, majestic unrolling. And everyone knew that biospheres that supported intelligent life were often the richest around. I felt a twinge of envy for the sentients on the ground. They were going to participate in one of the greatest spectacles in galactic history. They were in for quite a show. But even then, at this distance, so were we. The cube that we had been watching had been the last. Tarnasse was ready to begin. Without a word, he dimmed the lights of the bridge and began the performance, tentacles working so fast as to be nearly invisible. But we had little interest in the movement of his arms. The true wonder would be visible through the enormous front view screen. The white poles of the blue-green planet in front of us began slowly to glow red. Ternisei's tentacles moved subtly, and the equatorial band became a bright, nearly electric blue. Suddenly. Dazzling copperish-yellow bands seemed to sprout from the entire surface of the planet as yet more of the mysterious chemicals in the cubes reacted with the oxygen in the atmosphere. Mushrooms of infrared clouds, delightfully vivid, danced through it all. Abruptly, unexpectedly, there was deprivation. The heat from the reactions had boiled the surface layer from the oceans, and the opaque steam dampened the bright colors. Reds became pink, yellows paled to insignificance, The beautiful infrared disappeared. We felt the loss like a physical blow. The artist let us suffer for a few moments, driving home the poignancy of the dullness. But Water Viper is also a reactive force if the quantities are known and its properties are correctly used. And we were in the hands of a master. A few swift movements of a single tentacle liberated something deep within Ternese's cubes and immediately the entire surface was covered with roiling dark purple waves. Dark patches and light patches intermingled, giving the impression of a storm-bound planet-wide sea of deep violet, which even invaded the near-ultraviolet in an almost obscenely erotic shade. And just as we were wondering if he would cross the line into wing-flink's forbidden impolite society, a blinding white shaft seemed to bisect the purple ocean. At first, I believed the light had come unbidden from deep space to complete the masterpiece, but I realized what was happening. The artist had chosen that precise moment to begin the explosion of the planet's crust, directed with masterful precision into shafts through the roiling violet sea. Slowly, the force of the chemical reaction overwhelmed any possibility of control, and the white sphere of incandescent rock expanded through the violet light, turning it mauve, and then causing it to disappear altogether as the planet exploded. We watched entranced until the last sparks died in the oxygen-deprived vacuum. Oxygen-deprived vacuum. And it was only when Ternisaid turned to address us that we broke out of our stupor. I call it Soul 3, he said. We call it a masterwork.
1: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Gustavo's. Gustavo, thank you very much, sir. Do keep them coming. So this show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get this. Audible has over 35,000 titles to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to audiblepodcasts.com/sofa To get a free audiobook download of your choice. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. Now, it's been a while since I picked a pick of the week for Audible. I have been lost in Alan Steele's Coyote, Coyote Horizon, Coyote Frontier, and I'm now onto Destiny, and actually, there's a couple more there, and I'm just loving that. A great, do you know, now that I'm kind of, you know, I, I tweak a little bit with audio and sometimes as in show 30 on so I, I get it completely wrong but it's nice to like appreciate really good audio and the narrator that's doing the Alan Steele work is f- tremendous do you know what I mean it's the The whole set he's he done the whole lot and you know what I want to do because I've actually got a short story this is the, the where it's come from I got a short story off Alan Steele and it's set within this coyote universe. And I, I just started, you know, I sent it off, I got it narrated, I got it back. And I knew, you know, before I, I hadn't even read the story. And like I say I sent it off because I just knew it was an Alan Steele coyote one. When it came back, I was thinking, Oh, I want to read all what's gone before. So I get a, a kind of grasp of what's going on there. So I haven't even listened to the full Alan Steele story that I've got. That I actually got and I will play soon. I wanted to go right through and tackle all of them and like I say, I've just been lost in that coyote. The whole kit and caboodle of coyote, like you say, the the whole universe, it is just a fantastic thing. It's what I say what why? It's it just kinda bills and bills and bills and you just before you know it, you know, the characters are just coming into the the their, their own. You know, it's it's one of those stories or one of these universes that is just purely character driven. What this is what I've my take on it but the world Alan Steele created in Coyote it's just one of those ones it's I've been so lucky to have all these audiobooks and just you know dipping into them and dipping it and just being lost in this world he's created. It's best to probably start at the very beginning with Coyote, but then you've got Coyote Rising, Coyote Frontier, and I'm actually at the moment in the Coyote Horizon little part of that universe there. There's actually two spin-off novels as well within the same kind of universe, but not surrounded like the, the Coyote planet. And there's a new Coyote book coming as well, Coyote Destiny, which is coming in, I think it's probably March 2010 as well. So, if you are Audible, you know, and you have got an account, do check out. Honestly, you won't be disappointed with the the quality of the stories and the quality of the audio production. And just another thing about them, which I always remember when I was getting, like, Ashimovs a while ago. You know, they were in there, these these stories, and these stories now, have, you know, being, like, a kind of fix up and built into these books that he's got. And it's just... Like I say, a tremendous little universe he's created there. So there you go. Anything by Alan Steele in the Coyote universe is well worth recommending for Audible. So again, log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. So it's main fiction time and a great story. This one comes from Michael Bishop and is narrated by, like I say, our good friend, Mr. Ray Sizemore. I just wanted to kind of, again, one of them things, just sit back and just get lost in this great science fiction story. I hope you enjoy it. So Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present.
2: The Angst, I Kid You Not, of God by Michael Bishop The stun stunned us. They had seen that certain arrogant superpowers and certain stateless fanatics gripped Earth in a brutal vice, and they were appalled. Outraged on our behalf, the Zdun intervened. After parking their light cruiser in disguised orbit around Earth, they dropped microscopic chemical seeds into our atmosphere. These reacted with our terrestrial gases, rendering any human indigen, and only human indigens, comatose for 24 hours or an entire year, depending on the innate bellicosity of the person incapacitated. You could say that the Zdun gassed us, but actually they reconfigured the makeup of our air. The Zdun stunned us for our own good. The Zdun do not discriminate among civilized worlds in exercising either their judgment or their powers. They reconnoiter the dense core and the diffuse spiral arms of our galaxy, making their lists and checking them twice. They determine which sentient species are naughty, and which are nice and chemically correct every instance of the former. The magic grains by which the Zdun reconfigure a planetary atmosphere stymie the worst bullies for a full, local year, but let the lowly and the peaceful resume their lives after only a single day of oblivion. By the time the Zdun stunned us human beings, they had already gassed a dozen intelligent species in our galactic vicinity— then they abducted all the most warlike leaders to psychoanalyze in the long transit to their home world. As an analogy, let me cite the gassing of the Moscow Opera House decades ago when Islamic separatists seized that building and held its occupants hostage. The black-clad rebels threatened to blow everyone up if the Russian leader refused to stop the war in Chechnya and to grant it independence. Wisely or foolishly, "'the Russian authorities used a secret gas "'to knock out everyone in the opera house, "'terrorists and hostages alike. "'Unfortunately, so crudely did this gas work "'that, although it ended the siege, "'it also killed many of those gassed, "'including 120 hostages. "'The Zdun, however, are better chemists, "'physicists, astronomers, engineers, "'and general technophiles than those bumbling Russians. "'Indeed, they excel at such tasks.' "'lacking peers in the known universe. "'And so, when altering the atmospheres of worlds "'with morally pesky and or deficient, intelligent species, "'they rarely take a life. "'Those autochthons that accidentally die "'the Zdun regard as martyrs to their ethical cleansing "'of yet another reprehensible species. "'We've done you a favor,' the Zdun argued. "'Uprooted your vilest weeds and taken them home "'to repot as hollyhocks. "'Roses.' "'I said to my shipboard counselor. "'The hollyhock's a gaudy plant with no poetic resonances. "'We know hollyhocks,' Counselor Zdang said. "'And, believe me, we find them lovelier than your run-of-the-trellis Bobby Burns roses. "'I belonged to a small cast of bellicose entities whom the Zdun had chosen to take home "'to their small planet orbiting the star Spica, 274 light-years from Earth.' The inside of their light cruiser, what I'd seen of it, resembled a cross between a brand new sewer system, lots of tubular passages, metal ladders, and oddly placed manhole covers, and a high-tech playground, redwood monkey bars, cedar-sided slides and swings, and crumbly peat moss carpeted floors. The decor stemmed in part from the fact that the Zdun are lanky humanoid legumes with lianas for limbs and yellowish pods for bellies, butts, and heads. However, I spent most of my time in a metabolic suspension berth —the Zdun call them beds, of course— to avoid the effects of aging, which the Zdun escaped by sprouting new appendages every few days. Every other alien captive also went into a suspension berth. At length I met five others. Counselor Stang brought us together now and again for, well, group therapy sessions. Previously, you see, I had served the half-vast Rocky Mountain Hegemon as commander-in-chief of its global interdiction and liberation force. So I bridled when Zdang told me to sit, to speak, or to pay more attention. Who did Zdang think he was, anyway? And why should a man of my status kowtow to a yellow-bellied bean like him, even under a threat of instant molecular dispersal? Well, circumstances change minds, and rapping with my alien therapy mates gave me to understand that rank is relative and life a fleeting dream, when it isn't an outright outre nightmare. At my first session, Zhang introduced me to the chief decapitationist of an interplanet of sixty-one Cygni A, eleven point two light years from Earth. We met in the main therapy cabin where. A mother-of-pearl mist imparted gothic surreality to our talk. The air in this cabin was Omni-Respirable O, the Zdun designation for a universally life-supporting mix, and Zdang gave my partner and me DNA-coded translator scarabs. I put mine in my ear, but the reptilian Cygnusian stuck his to his cobalt-blue throat. The lizard called himself a toity his name for the dominant intelligent species on his home planet, and, frankly, he stank, like a combo of sour apricots and snaky sex. "'Go ahead,' Counselor Stang urged the toity. "'Tell General Draper who you are and why you're here.' "'Call me Al,' the lizard said. And then he wept, exuding from his skin a ruby-red oil that lent his signature B.O. a sweet fecal undertone." "'Gah!' I said. "'Our scarabs translated, rendering my "'gah!' into late empiric English as "'Al sent borders on the putrid. "'Al noted that he could say the same of mine, "'so Zdang broke out a spray bulb to neutralize the odors, "'gagging us both. "'Al admitted authorizing all the political decapitations "'in the predominant nation on the only life-supporting planet "'circling 61 Cygni A.' He admitted having the victims' severed heads placed atop the cactus-ringed rocks marking their family burrows. Al felt no remorse for this brutality, though, which he claimed had kept his nation from plunging into cold-blooded anarchy. Zdang's mouth fringes rippled, but he said nothing. I spoke into his silence. Counselor, how can a species that's poisoned the air of twelve planets presume to teach any one nonviolent behavior. My mind turned inside out, and indivisible blackness came upon me. But my second official gathering included the toity again and an energy creature from Epsilon Iridani IV, ten point seven light years from Earth. This creature, with a head like an otter's, flickered unpredictably in and out of view. She answered to the name Sage and smelled of stale Worcestershire sauce and fried plastic until Zang neutralized her scent with his papaya-shaped spray bulb. Sage and her kind lived amid a system of charged fields that the chief political entity on her planet generated and withdrew at whim, often killing fellow Caparoina, as all intelligent Iridians were called, hostile to its policies. The Zdun believed that Sage herself had authorized a withdrawal of fields resulting in two million Caparoyna deaths. Like Al, however, Sage insisted that her actions had saved her world from both barbarism and commercial stagnation. Zhang eyed me meaningfully. Please, General Draper, reintroduce yourself to Al and tell both him and Sage what most troubles you this morning. The bean terrified me. What if my words again rendered me non grata? Sensing my reluctance, Zang lifted a finger-pod and swore that nothing I uttered would expel me from his good graces. "'In that case,' I said, "'what most frets me today is the impunity with which you judgmentals done "'have butted in all over our galaxy.' "'Al gasped and sweated his ruby sweat,' Sage's head pulsed out of view, leaving only the gray outline of her body behind. And, yes, an indivisible blackness seized me. But Councillor Dang forgave me. A week later, in a new session, I met a seven-armed, chitin-plated, sentient caterpillar from the Tau-Seti system, 11.9 light-years from Earth. This caterpillar, Ka-Lachar, had invented a liquid incendiary called Sparktar, which flowed across the countryside, igniting the enemy upon contact and reducing him to ash. Lachar, scientist and tar-master, boasted of his expertise as a materials engineer and a genocidal assassin. Al and Sage, brittle decapitationist and ruthless force-field manipulator, sat unmoving, visibly cowed. I laughed, derisively, I admit, and was slammed a third time into indivisible blackness. Eventually, I met two more war criminals, the last in my group of six. A jellyfish with front-facing eyes and a living slab of ochre granite that pulsed with ennui and a large inner constituency of agitated flecks of mica. The jellyfish hailed from Goombridge 34, 11.6 light-years from Earth, it smelled vaguely like cotton candy, and answered to a name something like Gilnetta. The granite slab had originated on a planet orbiting Lakai 9352, 11.7 light-years from Earth. A hermaphrodite named Bakhmad-Sorek, it locomoted on a rubbery foot and secreted a musky slime that it shoved backward to create a pressure gradient, enabling it to move forward. Bakhmad-Sorek kept many crystalline personalities within itself, and felled its enemies by sending subliminal bolts of igneous music at them via headache-inducing radio frequencies. I said nothing when Counselor Zang introduced me to Gilnetta, the jellyfish, and so escaped early banishment to my suspension berth. But during my next session, with bach on hand in the guise of a glowing lopsided coffee table, I tapped my feet to some sort of heavy, heartfelt subliminal music. Al's waddles undulated, Sage's head pulsed in and out of view, Lachar's seven arms writhed, and Gilnetta's iridescent violet bell swayed as if combers from a fearful oceanic storm were pounding her. As for Counselor Zang, his runners grew and shrank in beat-driven cycles, and the beans in his pods rattled like a set of traps. Bakma thrummed, and everyone jived. Don't ask me what that rock confessed to, but, unlike the rest of us, it did communicate a candid remorse. Over our next few meetings, against my expectations, Al, Sage, Kadlachar, Gilnetta, Bakmutsorek and I bonded. Al lamented the inevitable heartbreak of cold-bloodedness in most toity family relationships. Sage... "'confessed the trauma of learning that a sister, Caperoyna, "'had a bipolar electrical orientation, "'and Atchar observed that few citizens of his war-torn land "'could manage the complex excruciations of metamorphosis without breaking. "'Indeed, he had spun silk about himself at least three times "'to escape adulthood, rather than to trigger it. "'Gilnetta opened up. "'Lamenting the nettlesome nature of jellyfish-hood,' particularly one's dependence for transport on methane swells and cetacean nudges. Bakhmat Zorak, swearing us all to secrecy, noted that early in its igneous development, it had harbored a millennia-long case of pyroclastic envy against a pit mine of collateral laminates. Even Counselor Zang, usually one shut-mouthed bean, let slip that a virulent fungal smut had almost derailed his aspirations to enter the Zdun Space Force. And I, Myron Pitbull Draper? Well, I acknowledged that I had secured my high position in the Rocky Mountain hegemon by boinking President Boback's wife, Eustachie, and diverting a thousand shares of my own dirty bomb stock to the portfolio of the Secretary of War— I also admitted my teenage affair with a comely creature on an Alberta sheep ranch, tossing hand grenades at protected wolves, paying a heroin addict to put a nail bomb in the mailbox of a peacenik fag, and using tax monies to indulge my three-decade-old pink shoe fetish. I reckon I got carried away. My support group listened closely. Sage fought hardest to withhold judgment, I believe, and the disappearance of her head for part of this session no doubt bespoke the intensity of her ambivalence. Zdang dehisked, scattering a rattle of seeds across the floor, but everyone else offered upbeat, if bemused, encouragement. When next we met, Sage declared that of all us captives in the Zdun therapy cabin, only I interposed artificial accoutrements between my body and their optical equipment. In short, I wore clothes. So, Bakhmat said, My refusal to appear before them nude, Sage noted, left me open to accusations of betraying, at best, my ridiculous human vanity and, at worst, a therapy-thwarting lack of candor. Actually, Khalachar wore a cap, a kind of yarmulke, but he, Al, and Gilnetta clamored for me to shed the military uniform in which the stun had tweezered me aboard their ship. Eventually I gave in. What else could I do? Instantly, the jellyfish from Goombridge 34 orbited my bipedal self, swimming about me as if in water rather than air. Sage sent her head over to ogle me, and Al palpated me from neck to knee as I indignantly squirmed. Kala Char shrugged seven times, eyeing me from afar. "'I presume that's your reproductive unit,' he said." "'but on the basis of its shape, not on its size. "'Pate to pediment. "'I flushed a bioluminescent red. "'Sage's head rebounded back to her flickering, otterine form. "'Ornament yourself again, Draper,' she said. "'You're not really hiding much, and after our last few sessions "'I no longer relish playing the bully.' "'I obeyed.' Not so much out of embarrassment as from a sudden onset chill, and I never appeared before them again minus my military blues, which made me wonder just how civilized they could be if none of their species had hit upon the concept of clothes for fashion, warmth, and intimidation. And so, meeting and sleeping, sleeping and meeting, we passed our time aboard this dun ship, Conquistador. The ties among us hired warmongers and genocidal maniacs grew tighter, more profound. Before my abduction, I would never have believed that the tidal dependencies of a jellyfish could elicit my sympathy, that the spiritual longings of an off-red slab of granite could influence my own, or that a whiff of lizard could render me maudlin. Which proves that astonishing links exist among the sentient creatures in our galaxy, and that even mercenary paladins from different planets pine for interspecies amity. Although we never shared a meal, the Zdun had foreseen major problems in our doing so. We shared our hang-ups and hopes, and we strove to forge a humane, unitary personality from our separate barbaric faults. Over time, we even touched one another in our suspension berths, By a disorienting dreams, a few of which suggested the work of Hollywood and wine vid-directors. I often got on Bakhmad frequency and occasionally on Kala Char's. Owing to their dreams, I soon understood that the Caterpillar regarded metamorphosis as a personality-annihilating form of death, and that the big slab had a petrifying existential horror of the end of the universe, which it saw as nigh and certain rather than far-off and theoretical. I mean, some of this stuff we had never even talked about— In dreams begin derangements, I guess, and although none of us greatly minded getting to know our therapy mates better through our nightmares, we soon began to resist Counselor Zang's commands to wrap up our regular sessions and to return to our beds. You're acting like sprouts, Zang scolded, putting off bedtime for as long as you childishly can. So off we'd slink to our coffins, where Al dreamt of cannibalizing a head that he had cut off, Sage emitted bursts of psychic energy that crisped our nerve endings, and Gilnetta broadcast visions of juvenile polyps attacking leviathans in underwater grottos as roomy as outdoor rodeo arenas. And we all quivered in unison, full of fret and dread, not to mention longing for a regular group therapy session. Then, during one such meeting, until that point trauma-free, poor Gilnetta up and died. One moment, the Medusa drifted about and the Mother of Pearl mist; The next, her tentacles dropped, her bell collapsed, and she plunged like a defective parachute. The spray that Stang used to neutralize our competing stinks failed, and the cabin filled with an odor, commingling the sense of rum, kelp, and necrotic coconut meat. Everyone froze, Even bach looked a bit more rigid than usual, until Lachar inched across the floor and disposed of Gilnetta's corpse by eating it. This act struck none of us as disrespectful, owing to the reverence with which Lachar ate and our own lack of relish for seafood. After this incident, bach nightmares worsened. Most of these dreams put the slab at their center. It turned red as lava, for example— and flowed downhill into a quenching pit, or broke into crystals as tiny as frost filaments and melted, or eroded over centuries into squishy sea sand. Then, in a nightmare of my own, Bakbitsoric set itself up in my old hometown as a tombstone. General Myron Pit Bulldraper RIP I could not wake up. In fact, I would have died in my sleep if Lachar had not projected at me a dream in which the caterpillar did a clumsy impersonation of the Hindu goddess Kali. Then he grabbed a hookah and blew smoke rings. These rings had started to turn red, blue, and yellow, and diffuse into butterfly wings, when I finally slid out of nightmare and back into picture-free sleep. At our next session, Zhang delivered a lecture. He informed us, brusquely, that our death fears were foolish and that Gilnetta's demise should comfort rather than bum us out. Stunned science had discovered that our expanding universe was closed rather than open, and this fact meant that the universe would not diffuse into a tenuous blanket of matter and antimatter debris by the deterministic engines of the heat-death hypothesis, but would cease its outward motion and contract— This action, in turn, would one day lead to a new Big Bang and the prospect of a fresh cycle of star-making and civilization-building. I said, Then we ought to call it the Big Boomerang. Nobody congratulated me on my coinage. Maybe our scarabs had failed to find good equivalencies for Boomerang. Indeed, bach protested that, by its species' calculations— The universe lacks sufficient matter to generate the gravity necessary to prevent it from expanding forever. Lacking such a break, the universe would never end but persist unto eternity in ever-widening, frigid darkness. Gilnetta's death had made bach profoundly aware of this fact, and Zdang's recitation of a more optimistic formula for the fate of the universe could not persuade the big slab to pronounce the real truth as it perceived it. Zdang argued that although most other species' astronomers had failed to account for as much as 90% of the universe's mass, the Zdun knew with certainty that dark matter and dark energy sufficient to halt and reverse universal expansion actually existed. This dark matter, he told us, consisted of particles that do not influence nuclear reactions, i.e. neutrinos, weakly interactive massive particles, and hypothetical quantum-level Zdunstones. The dark energy, on the other hand, arose not only from a tangle of fields dispersed throughout the vacuum at the subatomic stratum, but also from the hidden gravity-imparting properties of the angst of God. The angst of God, we captives chorused. I kid you not. Counselor Zdang explained that although the religions of many sentient creatures either denied the need for a creation-triggering deity or held that God would never suffer angst. The Zdun had authenticated God's existence and conducted experiments confirming the prominence of divine dread amongst those dark energies still undetected by our species. And it was divine dread, the angst of God, that would keep the cosmos from slipping into ceaseless entropic decrepitude. Silence, a localized entropic decrepitude greeted Zdang's speech. We captives glanced at one another and then at Zdang, hoping that he would document his claim or die as our poor jellyfish had done. Ultimately, Lachar asked Zdang what the alleged deity had to feel any angst about. The unrelieved inventive brutality of intelligent creatures against their own kind. Zdang looked at me and added, the inhumanity of humanity, if you will, to its very self. "'Ouch,' I thought. "'Lachar lifted his seventh arm as if saluting God, "'and with his other six arms embraced himself. "'Sage's head faded from view, "'and the scorch of fried plastic wafted from her body. "'Al hunkered down like a lizard on a rock, "'and the mica in Bakhmad Soric's topside maniacally twinkled. "'Now do you see why we intervened in your world's affairs?' Zdang asked self-righteously. Oh, man, I hated Zdang in this mode. Although I nodded, I tuned him out to think of what I most missed about my previous life. Brown-nosing aide-de-camp, taking my paychecks in foldable cash, and net-surfing for pink shoes. bach began to thrum, broadcasting to each of us, Zdang included, a beat that made our internal fluids ebb and flow erratically. "'You want to lessen God's angst,' the rock said. "'Right,' Zdang said. "'Very good.' "'And by lessening God's angst, you will diminish the supply of dark energy at large in the universe?' "'Maybe,' Zdang said, warily. "'And by lessening this dark energy,' Bakmetsorek pursued, You will guarantee the open-endedness of the cosmos, its heat-death, and the suffocation of every contingent intelligence but gods. No. Stang's various yellow pods had already begun to model. Yes, Backmik Zorik said. Logic leads to a single conclusion, namely that the Zdun have aligned themselves with entropy and against the—I blurted—the force that through the green fuse drives the flower— where did this line come from? Oh yeah, from a postcoital session with Eustachie Bobek in a cabin at Camp David. She had written her master's thesis on Dylan Thomas. Ignorant of my sources, Bachbakzoric finished its own sentence. And against the powers of life and regeneration. What can I say? That was the last time the slab of granite from Lakai 9352 met with us as a responsive entity. At our next meeting, Zdang had Al, Sage, Lachar, and me sit around Bakbidzorik in its common default mode, that of a tabletop. We did not session, however. We played five-card stud, praying that no one would piss Stang off again. Once, Lachar laid down his best hand with a loud slap, but our rebuking looks dissuaded him from taking the pot. When we finally arrived on the Zdun homeworld, the Zduns stunned us again by canceling their re-education programs. I went to work as a consultant to the producers of a mass entertainment about armed conflict, whom I introduced to the transgressive pleasures of gunplay and sensational explosions. We had so many pods, flowers, and stems flying around the set, "'you would have thought we were using a salad-shooter. "'The next day the director fired me, "'and I went into full-time begging mode, "'asking the government for return passage to Earth. "'Eventually the powers that be relented, "'and by light cruiser sent me home. "'Here on Earth everything had changed, and changed again. "'Even so, my fellow Western Hemispherites "'took me to their bosoms, and appointed me to direct their self-defense legions. The Easties soon picked a fight, and tomorrow an all-out war will likely begin. Still, but for the unfortunate angst of God, I could say, Life is good, my compatriots, for I have work to do. A pet man-of-war in my heated swimming pool, and a garden full of outsized purple hollyhocks. For George Alec Effinger.
1: There you go. do forget, I will put a link on to Michael's site. Please pop over there. <laughs> the man is so kind. He sent over, which is really nice, a collection of his short stories in, like I say, a book, Dead Tree format, and signed it and everything like that. So it's kind of pride of place now. It's. Amazing. And i am like to say, I'm looking through that. We'll get some more of them stories off Michael as well. He's he's kind enough to offer some stories as well. So if you like that one, do listen out for some more by Michael Bishop. And Ray. what can I say, sir? Fantastic. I'll actually give Ray some more stories. And actually one of them is going to be a little bit of an, an Easter egg story. Not science fiction, not fantasy, not horror. Something completely different. So do look out for that. Again, for everybody on the show, links from the website... Just to give you a little heads up now, what's happening Starship's over? Well, Josh sent over an, like an image capture from this new site, that's or the new, the new hole that he's kind of riveting together for Starship's over. And it's just looking tremendous. Do you know what I mean? Everything's going to be there on this kind of landing page, and then you can kind of divert and go off in all different directions. So I don't think that's going to be too long before that's up as well. And he assures me as well, the shop is coming. So, all good things are happening once Starship's over. I think it's time to round off the show with some new titles. We have two new titles. First one is Ursula K. Le Guin, 40th Anniversary Edition, The Left Hand of Darkness. This is like a special edition. It's a hardback book. It's, an, it's one of those nice little hardback books. It's priced at 12 99 It's from Orbit. On the back... Winner of the Hugo Award for Best Novel, winner of the Nebula Award for Best Novel, winner of the James Triptree Retrospective Award. This book, you know what I mean, say 40th anniversary, this one's went down the, the ages, has been like one of the classics there. Back page it says Ursula K. Le Guin was born in 1929 in Berkeley, California. The daughter of anthropologist A.L. Kroeber and author Theodore Kroeber. She read romance literature at Radcliffe College and Columbia University. In 1951 she married C.A. Le Guin and settled in Portland, Oregon where she still lives. She's written over 20 novels including The Dispossessed, The Lay of the Heaven and The Much Loved Earthsea Books. Like I said, this is a lovely little book. On the front it's it's like a really blizzardy white snow white picture and in. In the distance, there's two figures walking off. Comes in, pages, comes in at. 272, 278, including the map. Generally, AI is a diplomat of sorts, sent to observe the inhabitants of a snowbound planet of winter, but the isolated, androgynous people are suspicious of this strange, single-gendered visitor. Tucked away in a remote corner of the universe, they have no knowledge of space travel or life beyond their own world. So, bringing news of vast coalition of planets, they are invited to join. He is met with fear, mistrust, and disbelief, but also something more. For generally, ai who sees himself as a bringer of the truth? It is a bittersweet irony that he will discover the truth about himself, and in the snowbound, shrouded strangeness of winter, find both love and tragedy. First published in the year Neil Armstrong worked on the moon, The Left Hand of Darkness is a classic science fiction and a master's piece of modern literature. Winner of both the Hugo Nebula Awards for Best Novel it has been in print nearly 40 years and has sold over 40,000 copies. It is now optioned for a feature film. Screenwriter-director Will Phillips... Praise for Left-Handed Darkness. New York Times says, The Left-Handed Darkness is one of the science fiction's finest achievements. A profuse and original invention as Lord of the Rings, Michael Moorcock. Frank Herbert says, What got me into the quality of the storytelling? She's taken the mythology, psychology, the entire creative surround and woven it into a jewel of a story. There you go. Price, like I say, price start $12.99 from orbit. It's out 12th of November, hardback. There you go, a classic to have on your shelves. Next one up is... Orson Scott Card's Ender in Exile. The Direct is on the front. The Direct Sequel to Hugo and Walwyn Ender's Game. Praise for Orson Scott Card. Full of surprises. Intense as the word for Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. That was the New York Times. Interzone says, Every volume of the Ender saga comprises some of the most haunting, brilliant writing of the decade. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction says enthralling an extraordinary talented author. So the direct sequel to the Hugo and Nebula award winning bestseller Ender's Game. At first Ender believed they would bring him back to earth as soon as things quietened down. But things were quiet now and had been quiet for a year and it was plain to him now that they would not bring him back at all. That he was much more useful as a name and a story than he would be ever as an inconveniently flesh and blood person. At the close of Ender's game, Andrew Wigan, better known as Ender, knows he cannot live on Earth. He has become far more than just a boy who won a game. He is the saviour of Earth, a hero, a military genius whose alliance is sought by every nation of the newly shattered Earth hegemony. He is offered the choice of living under the hegemony's control, a pawn in his brother Peter's political games, or he can join the colony ships and go and settle on one of the new worlds. The story of those years on the colony worlds has never been told until now. Price starts seven ninety nine. Last pages 391 so it's a nice chunky volume there. Again, it's by Orbit. So, I mean, two great books there, but I reckon, you know, there has to be only one book of the week there. It has to be Ursula K. Le Guin's 40th Anniversary Edition, The Left Hand of Darkness. My book of the week. There you go, that's it. Show 108. I hope you have enjoyed it. I certainly have. Honestly, if you want to get in touch, send me an email, starshipsova at gmail.com. If you have, honestly, if you have any ideas for the show, for different events, different things going on, drop us an idea. That's exactly how Starship Stories got kicked off the ground, do you know what I mean? I'm open to any ideas. If you've got a good idea for the show, please get in touch. Don't forget, get yourself Starship Sova Stories Volume 1. It will be a great Christmas present give it to someone who doesn't really know science fiction there's some great stories in there it'll help me, it'll help them <laughs> how much more can you get, how much needy more can you get, please do that or donations that would be fantastic listen, until next time I'd just like to say, night from me Ooh.
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting
2: installment of Sorshi of a valuation procedure machine. Shuttle set for Airlock will be in